Esther is filled with all sorts of interesting twists and turns, coincidences, and reversals. It's one of two books in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. The name of God is absent. The other is Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Perhaps some of you who are sitting right here today have felt that God is absent at some point in your life. I know I have. If we are honest, we probably all have been there at some point or another. Maybe you feel that way right now, that God is AWOL or that God is exit stage left. Or maybe we are far from God. Maybe some of you haven't been much on religion over the years, not to mention Christianity. And others may have given up on God and the church. If this is you, would you give the story of Esther a chance to speak to your heart? In his recent book on Esther, pastor and writer Max Licato says it this way. Would you be open to a gold nugget that lies in the substratum of the Esther story? That gold nugget is quiet providence. Providence, he writes, is the $2 term theologians use to describe God's continuous control over history. That, not, that God not only spoke the universe into being and governs it by his authority, but that God is also right here. Sure, we don't have to look very far in Scripture for stories of God's miraculous intervention. The Red Sea opened, manna fell from heaven, a virgin gave birth, a tomb gave life. Yet for every amazing miracle in the Bible, there are, as Max Licata writes, a million whispers of God. Like when the prophet Elijah had withdrawn into a cave and God spoke to him through a gentle whisper. Other translations say the still small voice of God. Maybe, just maybe, the absence of God's name in the story of Esther will help us to look more deeply in the story for God's presence. This series, over the next four weeks, will focus on the main characters in the book of Esther. Esther, of course, her uncle Mordecai, who raised her, Xerxes, the Persian king, and his evil henchman Haman. In the story, we will see that no matter how bad things might get, that God is still at work in the mess and in the ambiguity of life. We will learn that grand reversals are God's trademark. Grand reversals are God's trademark. There's a study guide available to help us as we journey through these next several weeks. There are some out in the narthex on the table right behind the doors, and you can also access it online. It's in our Go With God email, and I believe also in our milepost email. And if, um, if you need a print copy, just 
let the church office know and we make sure to get one for you. I can't take credit for the study guide. Last summer, Pastor Aaron developed this for the youth Bible study. And after I heard um, Pastor Locato speak about his new book on Esther, it, uh, I started to uh, think about a sermon series, and I remembered Aaron's study guide. So I went and I asked him if he'd be willing to help work on the series and adapt that study guide for for this month, and he graciously did that. So I can't take any credit for that. Um, So I'm grateful that we can assimilate that into this uh, series. The book of Esther is set during the time of the Persian Empire. You might remember in 586 B.C., the Babylonians ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls of the city, And thousands of highly educated and elite Jews were deported to Babylon, many of whom were enlisted into the king's cabinet and the king in the the seat of the government. Some 50 years later, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And Judah and Israel, Judah to the south, where Jerusalem is located, Israel to the north, fell under the rule of the Media Persian Empire. It's one of the four empires mentioned in the book of Daniel. When the Persians conquered the Babylonians, most of the Jews were enslaved and they were scattered among the vast empire of the Persians. They were called the Diaspora, having been scattered all about. Some of the Jews remained in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament focus on them. Esther, however, is the only book in the Bible that is told from the perspective of the diaspora. By the time of Esther, it's around 480s B.C., and the, uh, the book runs for 20 years or so. Written much later, author, most scholars say, is unknown. You might say, Pastor Bob, how large was the Persian Empire? The Bible tells us that it swept from India to Kush. Kush, is, as you know, is in northern Africa. If you took the United States, the continental United States map, and flipped it out on its side again, that gives you an idea of the vast geographical area of the, of the Persian Empire. It'd be like driving from Maine to L.A. and then from Maine to L.A. again. Quite a large area. And our story is set in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Modern-day Susa is located in Iran, 150 miles northeast of the Persian Gulf, close to the border of Iraq. And the king who ruled the Persian Empire at this time is named Xerxes. Can you say, say Xerxes with me? Xerxes. Don't you love names that start with X? Xerxes. The Hebrew name is a little bit more difficult to pronounce. Achashverosh. I kind of like Xerxes. So we'll stick with that, and that's what the scripture uses. Xerxes was around 35 years old and was rich beyond imagination. He was a pagan king, and many of the pagan kings like him thought that they were God kings. 
They didn't care what God people worship, but they sensed that they were divine in some way. And we will see the reversal of how this God king would soon become a vassal of the one and only true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. While God's name is absent from the book, Xerxes would be part of God's great reversal of the Holocaust that was organized by Haman, the king's evil henchman. Xerxes' queen was named Vashti. That's a pretty cool name, too. Say that with me. Vashti. Her name was Vashti. She was a very independent woman, and she violated the king's rules. And that's not something that a woman would do in that time and place. So here's how it all began. If we want to read together in the first chapter, the first few verses. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. The party might have been an ideal set for a sequel to a spring break gone bad kind of movie. It lasted for 180 days, six months, half a year. Imagine a bachelor party from April to September, and you get the picture. Commentators suggest that, this, that there was one reason for the party, and then it was for the king to plot his attack on, on Greece, which would happen several years later, and it was a miserable, and it failed miserably. Perhaps this party and his drunken stupor throughout it gives some reason why. The writer of Esther states in verse 4, chapter 1, the king displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. Xerxes' character was unbefitting a royal. The culture of his court and kingdom was not unlike, this is my, my commentary, my take on it, no offense to any sports fans, but his, the culture of his court and kingdom was not unlike that which has been perpetuated by a certain owner of an NFL team in our nation's capital. Now, they're trying to get it straightened out, but you've probably read about that. Xerxes was a spineless leader, spineless as a jellyfish, gullible as Gilligan. Google the worst American presidents over our history, and Xerxes would be at the top of that kind of list. Max Lucado describes him as a wimp, an accomplished, accomplished drinker, but not much of a thinker. Catch him in the right mood, and he might just agree to genocide. When Alexander the Great entered the palace at Susa a century later, writes Lucado, Alexander the Great discovered in today's dollars the equivalent of $54.5 billion in bullion. That's billion with a B. 
and 270 tons of minted gold coinage. After the six-month party, well, the Bible reports that Xerxes threw a special banquet that would last seven days. So this is the after party. So six months and then a week-long after party. Listen to how Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, records it. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The garden was elaborately decorated with white and blue ribbon, uh, white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to silver rings on marble columns. Silver and gold couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stone. Drinks were served in gold chalices, each chalice one of a kind. The royal wine flowed freely. What a generous king. Well, on the seven, as we read in the story, on the seventh day of the party, the after party, the king made a demand and ordered seven eunuchs. Eunuchs were servants of the king, and they were what we would call at that time a sexual minority. They could only serve the king, and they were ordered to bring the queen to him. Go and bring Queen Vashti to me. And he sent them to get her. Verse 9 and following. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So at the same time he was having his after party, she had a seven-day banquet. On the seventh day of her party, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bibsa, Harzona, Bigta, Abagta, Zetar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Some scholars record that the king ordered her to be brought only wearing a crown, which gives us more reason to understand why she refused to have a part in such behavior. Xerxes did not invite Queen Vashti to the party to play bridge. He certainly didn't want to get her advice on political matters or anything about the state. He wanted to flaunt her in front of his drinking buddies. You see, Persia was not a safe place for women or girls of any age, They were considered property, and Vashti was considered property of the king, subject to the king. As such, she was his object. But now, the queen stood up to the king and refused to play his games any longer. What would come of this? 
Listen to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Then Memucan, one of the king's experts in the law, there are several in Scripture listed, he replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the province of the king Xerxes. So the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. The fear was that the queen would not listen to the king, and because of that, that women throughout the land would also disregard their own husbands, and there would be discord across the empire. What if women started thinking for themselves? Would men start to, would men have to be kind to their wives? Would daughters want to step out of the kitchen and get an education? It sounds like some parts of our world still, doesn't it? Some people in our own country think that way. What if they were to start calling the shots like the Supreme Court or the House or the Senate or the vice presidency or the president? We've got to put a stop to this. So listen to what happened. Verse 18 and following. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct would respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. This is the fear among leaders in the government. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. They needed to try to put out that fire quick. In, in, in King Xerxes' hungover thinking, the best way to avoid all this was to banish Vashti, to fire her and get a new queen. After all, well, the queen was property. The queen was expendable. So that's what he did. Queen Vashti was to be queen no more. And he ordered, the king did, that virgins from all 127 of his provinces be brought before him so that he could select the loveliest as a new queen. And the king chose a young woman named Esther. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. She was a Jew but had concealed her identity so she fit into the Persian way of life very well. Hadassah comes... Uh, is also mean myrtle, like crepe myrtle tree. And according to some rabbinical scholars, her name implies righteousness or to be righteous. Quite fitting for her. Though the king did not know it, she was an orphan and she was a Jew, raised by her uncle Mordecai, also a Jew, an official for King 
Xerxes. In all of this, and this is a story in the canon of Scripture, Mordecai advised Esther to marry the king, even though he was not of the same faith or race. Marrying someone outside of the Jewish faith and race was not according to the Torah of the law of God. But in this situation, in this time and place, this is what happened. And although they both hid their Jewish identity and blended in with the culture to survive, uh, they were trusting their God along the way. As if they were singing the Lord's song in a foreign land, as the psalmist writes. Well, if you thought the story was over and that we just have a new queen, the story's just beginning. There's a plot that, uh, to assassinate King Xerxes that was led by some of his own officials. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and in the king's government, heard about the plot. And we'll hear more about that later as it really changed the trajectory of the story. And then enter Haman, a wicked bureaucrat in the king's cabinet. He had plotted to exterminate all the Jews throughout the land, for they and their God were an obstacle to the king's power and his taking it across the land. Plus, Haman was a king, a descendant of King Agag, king of the Amalekites. Pagan people that King Saul left be nearly 500 years before out of sheer disobedience to God. To this day, that time, the Amalekites and the Jews despised each other and carried vengeance toward one another. Haman's goal was to secretly overthrow King Xerxes, and part of his ploy would then be to initiate a holocaust throughout the entire Persian Empire to eradicate the Jews once and for all. They would never be loyal subjects once he had the throne, which was his ulterior motive. His mindset was, let's get rid of the problem now. Haman, the Hitler of his day, set a date for the mass executions of all the Jewish people. And Haman convinced King Xerxes that it would be good to do this. They disobeyed the king because they followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, remember that. Because who came through the nation of Israel, the family of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who would be the deliverer of God's people and the world? Who would be the redeemer? Who would be the son of David, the Messiah King, but whom? Jesus, the son of Nazareth. The Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, who died and rose on the third day. This is part of that grand story to redeem the world, to reverse the trajectory of sin that had gone rampant and once for all to become a sacrifice for all people. So Esther, the very book that doesn't even mention the name of God, is part of grand, God's grand story to redeem the world. This king, Xerxes, trusted his advisor, Haman, and set a date for the 13th of Adar, February or March, 
for this mass execution and put it in writing. And since it had an extensive courier system like the Pony Express back then and got word out to all of the provinces that this was to be done, the Jews were horrified at the news and Mordecai, Esther's uncle, himself a scribe of the king, sent news to Esther in the palace begging her for help to do something to leverage her position of authority in the presence of King Xerxes to perhaps change his heart. Her future, Mordecai's future, and the future of the entire Jewish race depended on her decision. What would Esther do? This young, righteous child of God. What would she do? After all, who knows that she had come to such a royal position for a time as this? Would she risk it all? Or would she play it safe? And you'll have to come back next Sunday to find out the rest of the story.